Hi, and welcome to Tunu Sleep Stories. My name is Ore, and tonight I will be your guide as we visit my village. Before we begin, let us take a moment to relax and find comfort in the space we are in, here and now. You return from the day in the field. Your legs carry the memory of fatigue. A hint of burnt cedar wood hangs in the air. The sky is clear tonight. You look up and see the stars hanging in the tapestry of the night. You look ahead from the ridge you stand upon. A dozen or so thatched huts are scattered around a large bonfire in the village square. From afar, the people beside the fire look small. You crave your bed but your body needs nourishment. Your bare feet move through the mud, sinking in. You imagine the footprints you leave in the dark. Tomorrow, they will be accompanied by those of an animal, a wolf or a chimp. For now, the land bears your mark, tells the story of your toil alone. You take a deep breath. You inhale and you can now smell cobs of corn roasting upon the fire. You inhale again, this time longer. You detect bean soup. A third time and your senses become sharper. The promise of the comfort of home has eased your muscles. You crouch down in the sand, then you prostrate yourself on the ground, your forehead touching it. You return your worries to the ground. Your palms rest beside your head. The heat that radiates from your palm is met by dust. The earth takes it away, leaving for you the cooled mud. To you I have returned what you bestowed upon me the day I was born. This burden of my existence, the worry of my head, and the fatigue of my toil, you whisper to the ground. You can feel a burden lifting from your shoulders. You know many have done this before you. Many will do it who come after you. Your village elders believe that the worries of work and the weariness of labor must be left away from the place of comfort that no individual, however much tired, should touch a child with a hand whose joints ache with exhaustion, that one must not sit to eat with the sweat of exertion still gleaming upon their bodies, and that they must not hold their wives when they can barely hold themselves together. You leave your fatigue to the earth, you make your way to the bonfire. You wave to your neighbors. The elders sit huddled in together. The wrinkles sculpted into their faces deepen as they smile and laugh among themselves. Their voices whisper. You can only make out their conversation by their expression. You are thinking there is not much to discuss since not much has happened. The last child born was a week ago. They are only going to bless the food. 
they are offered the best place, one where the fire smoke does not blow, where the heat does not reach, and the blaze does not burn their eyes. You look for your wife. You search the group that is dutifully lining up pots, the utensils ready to be poured into once the beans are cooked. Your wife is not there. Your eyes search beyond the group, towards those who are bringing the grains and spices. You find her with those who are grinding. Her blue gilly head wrap towers above the rest. Her black tunic flows down to her ankles, loose and marked with browns of cheetah patterns around them. In a large mortar, she pounds the spice the cooks will use. Your eyes meet across the blazing bonfire. Your wife smiles at you. Someone has added dry wood to the bonfire. It leaps up towards the sky like a heron. You watch your wife through the blaze. Her golden figure stands away from you, alone with the pestle in one hand. You almost skip to them. Your wife hands the pestle over to someone else and walks towards the well. You follow, throwing the bucket inside, which hits the water in the well with a splash. Your wife's hands are looping in a circular motion. The rope coils itself around the wheel. The bucket is slowly drawn up. Water spills from it. You crouch down on the ground. Cool water pours over your head. You gesture to them to stop pouring. You collect a handful of mud. The air around you smells of wet earth. You scrub some of the damp mud upon yourself. It is soft. Without you having to say anything more, the water pours over your head. You turn this way and that, making sure you have washed each inch of your body. You hug your wife, holding her in a warm embrace. The radiance of her presence seeps into you. You feel like you have fused into her. The work for the day now over and the promise of food and comfort are enough for you. The two of you walk towards the bonfire, hand in hand. Before sitting upon the logs with the rest, you proceed to the small space outside your thatched hut. You recover from it your cockerel, Zaman. His shiny black eyes and his red feathers are a great pride for you. You pet him lovingly, and then you bring out the gift you have brought for him. It is the first of the wheat kernels from your fields. You open your palm dropping a few upon the ground for him. Zaman's head sinks into the ground and raises mechanically as it picks the kernels. You find this oddly satisfying. You take your place beside your fellow farmers. Your wife has gone back to grinding the spice. The children, who had been kept in check by their mother's vigilant eyes, now ran giggling and bubbling towards the fire. They whispered among themselves, calling to each other, forming groups and teams. Soon, the son of Iwan brought out his drums. He liked to practice them before the arrival of big festivals. 
As you and your fellows sit, massaging the calluses in your palms, the son of Iwan slapped the drums with his smooth fingers. You enjoy the conversation interspersed with the beatings of the drum. You look forward to the highs when the music reverberates through the valley. It reverberates in your spine too. Your fingers thrum on your thighs. Your head slides up and down. You sit there on the log. You know each step to the beat. Your mind dances to it. The children are playing. They call each other huddled together. You watch them crouch down, holding pebbles in their hands, a couple of them lined on the mud. They take turns hitting the pebbles, continuing until they miss a shot. Your fellows have started telling each other tales. They tell each other of the things they experienced during the day. Abayomi dug the earth till he hit the stone. He told how his feet had sunk into the mud, its color matching the tree barks, and from under the stone had crawled out a line of red ants in perfect symmetrical straight line, marching in frenzied discipline below large chunks they carried. Abayomi had watched them until they disappeared. Adebayo jumped in. He wore a yellow tunic with matching trousers, his head shaved. His clothes glowed and glittered in the bright flame. He inquired if Abayomi had touched an ant with great concern. Abayomi tisked. Adebayo thanked the gods. Then he launched into the story of Anansi. He told how once Anansi and his son were very clever farmers. They tilled the land and from its produce filled the belly of their household. But one season, the palanquin of clouds that carried the rain did not visit their land, and thus their fields thirsted for water. Anansi's son went around his field in much sorrow. As he was roaming his field by the side of the road, he found the king's jester. He sat hunchbacked by the side of the road. He asked the son of Anansi what wooed him. The son of Anansi told him about the plight of his land and the anger of the rain. The jester offered to help the son of Anansi. He suggested that they put up a show for the rain, and when it comes to watch, it will shake so hard that it will fall to the ground. The jester told him to bring two sticks and beat them upon his back as he danced thus creating a hysterical sight for the rain. They followed the jester's plan, and rain showered upon the land. He thanked the jester and went on his way to till his land. Ananti stood hidden under a tree and witnessed the event. He wondered if his son had put up a show and the rain was pleased. He perhaps could get the rain to laugh and fall to the ground even better by hitting the jester harder. He went to the jester to run his plan once again to which the jester agreed. However, Anansi began hitting the jester so hard that his body gave way. Now that the jester was dead, Anansi sought to blame someone else. He placed the body of the jester on a tree and waited underneath it. His son approached him and asked why were the fields still dry. Did he not ask the jester to help? Anansi told him that he had tried, but the jester had taken to climbing the tree and would not come down. Anansi then asked his son to help him. The son dutifully climbed the tree, and as soon as he touched the body, 
it fell lifeless to the ground. Anansi cried that his son had killed the king's jester. The son, aware of Anansi's devious ways, devised a plan. He told Anansi that the king had been angry at the jester and had announced a reward for whoever brought his body to him. Thus, Anansi carries the body of the jester, dreaming of a large reward and days without toil. Instead, the king was furious at the death of his favorite jester. He had a large coffin built for the body and enchanted it so that the bearer could not set it down. It could only be transferred to another bearer. After days of carrying the weight of the coffin, Anansi came across Mr. Ant. He told Mr. Ant to hold on for him this possession while he ran to the market. Mr. Ant, doubtful of Anansi, resisted at first, but then accepted when Anansi promised to return. Mr. Ant was honest and expected all to honor their promises like him. Anansi, however, never returned. And to date, Mr. Ant carries his burdens. Adebayo sat down. The story had passed on from generation to generation. No one touched the ants for the fear that they might be burdened by the ants' burdens. You have heard this story many times, but each time, the teller intersperses their voice with the story in your head. The first time, it was your grandmother who had told you this story. Now that the intensity of your focus shifts from Adebayo, you notice that the cooks have long since placed the communal pot on fire. The steam rises towards the heavens, momentarily clouding the view of the stars that peek down at you and your people. You rise and go and sit beside your wife. The food is to be served, and each person must be with their family. Near the fire, your wife's skin gleams golden. Her eyes are large and dark under her eyebrows. Her hair glossy and beaded. You touch the top of her hand. The skin is smooth, luxuriously warm. It is the feeling of lying in a hammock after a day of long hard work. Your wife puts forth the bowl towards the serving people. They fill your bowl to the brim. The two of you sit on your stools and eat. The soup steams the beans a dark brown in the thick gravy. The wind blows softly as you consume your meal. Children sit in the laps of their mothers, who mash the beans for the younger ones. They cool them, raising their arms, softening their voices, entrancing the children. The logs in the bonfire now glow orange. Black ash is scattered on the ground. It is a low flame, a ghost of its former blazing self. Later, the village dogs will sit around the cold ambers, providing extra security against passers-by with ill intention. You start drawing shapes in the mud, as you have done for a long time. It is an after-meal ritual. While the tobacco is being rolled by the village elders, and the ones who do not plow the fields collect and stack the dishes near the well, the conversation has broken off into splinters. The day's events communicated, the children's misdemeanors disciplined by a staring eye, the small things to be fixed communicated to the repairmen. You rise from your place and sit by the village elders. You tell Ibiri, the oldest farmer alive, 
of the wheat kernels that are juicy and full of flavor. He tells you that he had seen the village goats huddling together this evening, thus indicating a rain. He hands you tobacco rolled in leaf. You go to the bonfire to light it. As the first bitter smoke of the leaf and the fire meets your eyes, they water. You cough and retreat when you hear the cackling laugh of your wife. She has doubled over with laughter. Her cheeks have risen like the mounds of mud. You laugh along, sitting down and resting your head to look at the stars. The children around you have hushed down. Some have fallen asleep on their mother's laps as they snatch the last conversations before going off to bed. The serenity of these scenes draws you in. You wrap your arms around your knees and you look around. Far away, you can see the small ridges, the trees that stand in clusters and then isolated each other. Some are tall, while others are shorter. They too stand with each other for love, for comfort, for support. The activities in the square have livened up again. The pots are being washed. You too pick up a pot and take it to the well. As people draw buckets and pour into the pots, another group uses clay to sponge off any remnants of the meal you left. You join this group. The clay feels soft in your hand. Your hands clench the edge of the pot, which is metallic and almost cold. As you rinse it one last time and the water spills out of it, you see three separate streams going away from the village. In a few years, due to these washing activities, the mud here too will be ripe for farming. You carry water back to the village square. It will be enough for a night when someone wakes up thirsty. You know that after this final task, a soothing darkness will engulf the village like the skies have pulled a curtain over the sun. And it will then be time to sleep so you can wake up during the early hours of the morning, work, and then, after lunch, take a siesta in the shade of the large tree when the sun is high and the heat is too much. For now, the village boys are shoving handfuls of dust on the fire and you stand there watching it burn out until there is complete darkness and you can find the path to your heart with your feet only. <laughs>